Ever wonder how someone's age and even whether they're left or right-handed can affect retail and your brand? You should. And if so, what should you do with that information? Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail, the podcast of The Retail Doctor, and I'm your host, Bob Fibbs. On this episode, I'm talking to Paco Underhill, author of the seminal book, Why We Buy the Science of Shopping. He's also the founder of EnviroCell. Let's get to it. Welcome. Today's guest is an environmental psychologist. He's the author of the groundbreaking book, Why We Buy, as well as several others, and the founder of market research company, EnviroCell. Of course, I'm thinking about Paco Underhill. Welcome. Hey, happy Friday to you. EPIS, Shabbat Shalom, whatever it is. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't have thought you'd been that jovial. I don't know why. Your works are so serious. Oh, come on now. Uh, part of what I try to write for a popular audience, and that means that I want to make them either giggle. Um, and someone said, mostly your writing is funny, funny, and occasionally funny, uncomfortable. Yeah, I would see funny, uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, so who are you? You know, maybe maybe there's someone under a rock that doesn't know who you are or uh, what you have to do with retail. So it, just in your own words, what should we know about you besides you're a funny guy? Um, I grew up uh, as the son of a diplomat. So I grew up uh, traveling uh, around the world. Um, I had a terrible stutter, which I still have the remnants of now. So I had to always use my eyes as a way of figuring out where I was and what the rules are. And there are many people have said that I turned a coping mechanism for a handicap into a profession. Just a quick thumbnail. About 40 years ago, I was teaching fieldwork in a doctoral program in environmental psychology and developed a way of using a motion picture camera back then to measure how people move. And um, as I looked at the different possible applications for it, uh, one of them was within the context of commercial spaces. I had never had any uh, interest in retail. It was just an obvious possible application. And um, when I stepped off into that world of retail, there were two tools that people used. One was the tools of media research, which was asking people questions. And part of what we know is that while we can ask people questions in person, we can ask them on the phone, we can ask them online, we can do it qualitatively, we can do it quantitatively, but often what people say they do and what they actually do is often different. So that's one. The second tool that people used is sales research, which is the myopic view of the functionality of a space or a website now from the vantage point of the cash register. And while it's always very important to understand where you're winning, it's often even more important to understand where you're losing. So we developed a process to go into physical spaces to set up cameras, just put observers on the floor. And rather than be, you know, anthropologists in Papua New Guinea, we were anthropologists in the aisles of grocery stores and fast food restaurants and 
fashion outlets and uh, department stores, and we watched what people do. And one of the applications was, that came very clear and was the origins of our business was as a testing agency for prototype stores. And of the 50- You were way ahead of the curve then. Yeah, of the 50 largest merchants in the world, we worked for roughly half of them. Of the 50 largest merchants here in the US, we worked for more than two thirds of them. And we went from studying an entire store to studying a section or a part of that store. And that led us to the world of um, consumer product goods companies. We have gone beyond stores and banks to work in doctor's offices and airports uh, museums and other types of commercial spaces. And over the years, um, we've built other tools, gone beyond that original motion picture camera uh, to look at what happens online. Our largest clients today are technology companies looking at that meeting of, of cyberspace and physical, physical, physical space because so much of our tech world still involves something that deals with either going to a, um, a telecom store or going to a computer store or going to some other place to try to figure out, is this the right thing or product or even software for me? So are we all just rats to the cheese? Is that what you're studying? Because on one side, I can see that it's behavior-based, why did she go over here? Why did he pick that up? And I tell you, oh, I like the color. But then you look at something else, you're like, it really wasn't the color. You know, Martin Lindstrom, uh, we worked with him before as well. And looked at, there's a huge disparity what I say in the moment and what I do. And are there, let's say, three things that are in common between doctor's offices and retailers and airports? Are there, is it that we're predictable or is it that there are fundamental ways that uh, we show interest in something? Well, um, I think one of the first ways of looking at it is that there are biological constants. There are things that govern how we move and how we see things. Uh, the first is maybe the fact that 90% of us are right-handed. And therefore, uh, whether it's a doctor's office or an airport or a store, a counterclockwise circu circulation pattern puts that dominant hand closest to whatever we we want to in, interact with. You know, I'm 67. Uh, I know that our eyes age in the same way all over the world. And therefore, understanding the difference between how someone sees at 67 and how someone sees at 14 is a really critical part. And if you're Abercrombie and Fitch or you're uh, Century 21, maybe you have a certain target market. But if you're an airport or you're a Target or you're a uh, ASDA, um, being able to understand the difference between young eyes and aging eyes is a very important part. We also know that mostly we uh, love our children. Um, and we, uh, <laughs> mostly. We I like that. We like our spouses and that we tend to move often in very predictable social clusters. I can move by myself, I can move with a friend, I can move as part of a couple, I can move as part of a family. And certainly uh, we have a younger generation that often moves as a posse. And those are all things 
that are common to many different types of spaces. Yeah, I, th I think um, I've told this story before, but working with Frito-Lay and I remember when the VP, she said, you know, when we do tracking and we just look at sales numbers, we can see that the person who buys a pineapple is the most likely to buy a calling card and a toothbrush. And she goes, and, and what are we supposed to do with that? Were we supposed to put toothbrushes by the pineapples and say that that's going to do it? Because a while ago, that is what we thought. And now we're kind of realizing it's a lot more nuanced than that, correct? Well, you know, there's the old joke that they tell in the market research world is that, you know, uh, small market moms driving mini, mini, minivans with uh, kids that play soccer prefer Jif to Skippy two to one. And, you know, I, again, we get back to it. I think one of the things that is really important in the broader world that we're trying to function in is that for all of the emphasis on strategy, being able to have an understanding of tactical execution is a really important one. And part of what we know with our clients is that when we go out to do a study, if we can come back with something that they can do in two weeks or a month to be able to win some victories, it's a lot easier to be able to start talking about what they should do in six months or next year, okay? Yeah. And that familiarity with, ta with tactical execution or winning victories, I think is one of the dominant issues in the broader world of being retail doctor or retail whatever, or you know, being able to you know, function successfully in the con context of our you know, very rapidly changing world. Absolutely. So 40 years ago, you are this pioneer with your cameras and you're going out and looking at stores. Has the way you look at um, consumers changed in 40 years or have we changed? Oh, are we oh, still yeah. that same person we were? No. I mean, one of the great things about our job, bro, is that for all of the things that are the same, what, what made a good store or what made a good website in 2000 and what makes a good store or a website today are different. And they are a reflection of the evolution of us. Um, and they're generally five things that we look at that are changing. First is the understanding that our visual language is evolving faster than our spoken or written word. That our eyes, courtesy of the internet, courtesy of movies, what, whatever, have just fundamentally changed how they work. Second is probably the most seminal event in our species since the taming of fire is birth control. And therefore, the relationship between gender is very much in transition. The third issue is the issue of time. All of us are moving through our lives with a clock ticking inside our heads. And for everybody who talks about being money poor, there's somebody else who's much more acutely aware of being time poor. And how do we factor that process in? Fourth issue is what is global and what is local? And this is, you know, from, you know, the difference between Dubai and Istanbul or the difference between Albany and New York City. Those are all things that are, are, are key to, under, to understanding change. And then the final issue is that um, in the mid-1990s, we went through a very important evolution as a species, which is up to that point, the overwhelming majority of global wealth was in the hands of an aristocracy. 
And in 2019, the overwhelming majority of global wealth is in the hands of people who earned it in the course of their own lifetimes. And that therefore, that combination of, of educating and selling has taken on a much more important role than it ever has in the history of commerce. That's interesting, that last one, that they've actually made it. So what are the implications for, um, you know, the whatever it is, 99% who are not the wealthy uh, people on Billionaire's Row in New York City? Does it mean that there's more of a sense of, of that I could do that too? Um, you know, it used to be in retail, retail kind of existed to answer a customer's question, what's new, but also I define myself by what I bought as a boomer, right? We grew up in, my, my parents grew up in the Great Depression and, you know, my mom saved string and darn socks and all of these things. So when I could buy my own and do something, that's the way I define, I still have that in me. That's not millennials or, or iGens, but ultimately, are we changing that much from what we used to value or once that's baked into you at an early age, is that what you carry forward? Well, I think there's there's always that sense of conflict here. And I think that the, the first point you made is a very important one, which is that merchants and marketers need to remember that the medium household income in the USA is just under $60,000 a year. And that for all of the fascination with rent the, rent the runway and all of the other aspects to it, that there is a core consumer out there in small town uh, uh, America, that is uh, where you have two working uh, adults raising a family, and there's um, there's some priorities that you have to look at, and some of those may be, for example, is what is the difference between a T-shirt uh, from Fruto Balloon with one quality cotton and with a a very moderate price price point versus a t-shirt with a much higher quality con cotton that may last four times as, as long. So I think, you know, one of the things that uh, we're wrestling with is the degree to which the consumer is either going, oh, I'm going to get it as cheaply as I possibly can, or can I educate you to buy fewer and better things and be able to, you know, lower your, 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 in reality, your carbon footprint on the world. We'll explore more in just a bit with Paco, but first a word about Field Agent, our sponsor. Field Agent is an on-demand platform that furnishes businesses with in-store information, shopper insights, and services to drive product sales all through the Field Agent mobile app, featuring a panel of over one and a half million shoppers. In a matter of hours, you can get photos and data from stores everywhere. If you need in-store visibility and you need it fast, Field Agent is the solution for you. Visit www.fieldagent.net slash retail doctor for exclusive content. Now let's get back to it. Now, certainly all of us can look at those one per centers and we can look at it with some degree of envy and uh, with uh, with a certain understanding. But one of the things that's really, really amazing is that the knowledge of brands, um, you can go to the favelas of Brazil and see the most desperately poor um, teenagers who have the same knowledge of brands of somebody who's grown up in Gross, in Gross Point, Michigan, 
and uh, you know gone to uh, uh, a fancy private school. Yeah, that's really interesting because I remember talking to a woman who worked in the HUD out uh, uh, office, and she talked about how she goes into um, people who are struggling homes, and shows it is not uncommon for me to find a Prada bag, and I'm she goes, and I'm not talking the knockoff. I'm talking that's the one. She goes, the thing we seem to forget is that the poor or whatever you want to call it, those who are not the 1% or lower, have the exact same aspirations as we do. And yet we think that they're somehow different. And that that status, you know, I was recently reading today that 80% of uh, jobs in America pay less than $20 an hour. So to your point, they're not going through and buying an Oculus and they're not going to be using beacons on their smartphones to be navigating things, right? They're just trying to get through the day. So what does that mean for retailers? If, if you know, people are more time-starved, if, uh, if people are discovering products in a new way, you know, I, w- I would just, and I'm riffing on this, but, you know, H&M had, what was it, $6 billion in unsold merch? Last year, we thought that was the future. Everything was going to be fast fashion. What are the clear markers that you see coming out of in, going into 2020 about how retail is evolving, particularly well, from the consumer choice, but also the product choice? I, I think there are a number of, number of issues. I am, as you, as you may know, I am working on a new book for Simon & Schuster with the working title, The Future of Eating and Drinking. And one of the things that we're looking at is the conflict between what is global and what is local. And the degree to which, whether it's the impact of the farmer's market on grocery, or it's the fact that we have uh, 10,000 plus small scale distillers who are putting out, you know, rum, whiskey, whatever, making their own wine and beer. And the customer out there is going, you know, maybe I do want to start using stuff that's grown or made within a hundred miles of where I sit. That said, the other aspect to it is that saving money isn't just about the economically challenged. It is about people feeling smart and empowered and that there are lots of us who do a major part of their food shopping at the farmer's market and end up paying a premium. And then we're at Costco buying, you know, Kirkland or at Sam's buying Sam's Club product because we know that the quality of that generic product is actually just as good as the branded product that we've been uh, historically told was better. Right. Well, and we're, we're all trading down. You know, I think that we're all moving. I think retail's moving into we're actually returning to the pilgrims where, you know, I don't have to open Bob's coffee house and I'm going to take on Starbucks. I just have to take on my little Berg. So it'll be Bob's coffee house and I'll serve my little trade area and that's it. And then someone else will do their little gift area. And certainly I think craft breweries have made that difference. You know, somebody said recently that we've lived through the golden age of restaurants, Paco, that, that um, now with so much delivery and you can open a storefront kitchen without even having to have a restaurant that that's the future without getting you to give away everything in your book. Is, is that the future or, or, or do we believe that human beings have a need to go out and be social to eat and drink and shop? Well, I would, I, I would create another dimension to it. As I sit in my office in New York city, 
we accounted eight different places within a hundred meters of my front door where you can have a cup of coffee. And you can have a cup of coffee in the cafe inside of Club Monaco. You can have a, a coffee inside the Red Fleece Cafe at Brooks Brothers. You can have it at Godiva, the coffee shop around the corner. There's Pancatidion, there's Divocion. And some of it is where do I want to be seen holding that cup of coffee? And that one of the defining issues about going out is that you and I as aging guys don't see ourselves or who we are in the context of where we tend to go. Whereas in our work for the adult beverage community, one of the things that we're seeing is the much more discerning or discriminatory practice that the female consumer is having about where do I want to be seen and what do I want to be seen with in my hand. So, and is that a function of branding or is that a function of consumer identity? Well, one of the things that was very interesting to me, which, which made complete sense, is that we have a very popular product where we, um, we have a, a researchers outside a restaurant. And as somebody comes in, we ask them if they will wear eye tracking glasses, mobile eye tracking glasses. And we ask them to wear for the first 10 minutes, they're inside the, the restaurant or the bar. And then we get the glasses back and we have a little video uh, screen and we go through what they looked at and then interview them about what that process is. And one of the things that we found is there were a certain group of women who were ordering things based on the outfits that they were wearing, that the beverage was an well extension. Wow. Which, and you know, when you think about it in terms of, you know, the, the fashion, the presentation makes absolute and complete sense. But I don't think there's a guy on the planet that orders beer based on what the color of the label is versus what the color of his shirt is. Yeah, no, no, that's interesting. <laughs> and, interesting. and ultimately, uh, how does a brand react to that? You know, do you say you'd look good with this? I mean, one of the things we're also noting is why are CPG manufacturers all in trouble right now? These brands that were built for decades, right? About consistency and we're cleaner than the other guy or fresher or fill in the blank. And that mass market seems to be going away and they're trying to figure out how to be more boutique-y about it. There's an, there's an uh, erosion of trust here. And that is, that is a very, very uh, intense issue in both the consumer product goods companies and with some of the global merchants here in terms of being able to establish a better connection to their customer. Like Johnson Johnson with the baby powder and, oh yeah, well, I guess it did have asbestos in it or some of the other things have gone on. I mean, when I grew up, it was Tylenol, right? Remember the Tylenol scare? What was right. it? Like two or exactly. three people had trouble and then Tylenol was gone. So, yeah. well, I, I always love to, to ask, since you've built a business and brand for yourself, what's the best advice you think you ever got? And that could be any type. It's free range um, here. I think the best advice is that if you're focused on winning victories okay, and you have a history of winning victories, people will accept whatever it is that you're, that you're packaging. And the fact that uh, um, 
you have that history is, I think, a really important focus. And that is, um, and that's real. People are always attracted to winning and winners. You know, it's interesting you say that because I'm always frustrated with small businesses this time of the year. Invariably, they'll get this story. Some little paper will call up somebody. How's business? It's terrible. You know, the internet's pushing us out. It's all Amazon, all of our customers. And I'm like, do you realize like no one is attracted to this message? (laughs) Do you realize that this is the time when you would be saying, oh, we're excited. We're doing this and this and this. Because perception, uh, especially in a smaller world, is all about trust, right? I mean, you're, you're like me. I can trust you. Well, I think this is the, one of the more exciting issues that we're dealing with in the broader world of consumption is that in the context of the farmer's market, a small boutique farm is economically viable if they can go directly to the public, one. And second, if they find some interesting ways of doing some modest processing. So if you're running an apple orchard, being able to go from you know, selling apples to making cider or to drying apples that people can put in people's lunch boxes, um, th- those, are th- those are all things that can contribute to uh, a lot of couples uh, starting businesses that are, that are viable, fun, and they feel good about themselves. And that's really just, that's as important as well. So um, I know that um, what women want, wasn't it what women want was one of your books a few years ago. Are men and women that different? Well, obviously you just said about the, about the uh, uh, premium adult beverage. You know, um, it used to be in our research work that we observed gender as being one of the big differences. Men were uh, hunters who needed to go into the forest and, shoot something and bring it out quickly. Women were gatherers. I think one of the things that's very interesting now is the difference between generations. And that is recognizing that my son or my godson or my grandson has a different relationship to consumption than, than I do. And that therefore uh, he's much more willing to call up one of his buddies and go, let's go hang out at the mall than I ever than I ever was. And that's important too, because we're hearing that iGens are returning to the malls, that uh, millennials and iGens are absolutely the ones that are gonna lead back that path to, to brick and mortar. Um, what, so I, where you've been gracious with your time today and I ask almost all my guests one question. So uh, you have a friend of yours there in New York City. No, we're not gonna give you New York City. You have a friend of yours in uh, middle of the country, Oklahoma, and says, uh, you know, uh, me and my husband, we've always wanted to open our own little store. And what would uh, what would you tell them? So you say, okay, well, meet me over at the uh, coffee house and let's discuss it. What would you tell somebody going into retail? Well, uh, actually, in June of this year, I was in Oklahoma uh, City with the Downtown uh, Association talking to small merchants okay. about um, – what does it mean to start a small and operate a boutique business in the context of a, of a Midwestern setting? And you know, there are a couple of things. First of all is recognize that the internet isn't just a way of selling, it's a way of creating community. 
And one of the things that I cite is a wonderful merchant that I know who used to operate a evening wear store where she stocked about 5,000 long dresses. And her proposition was, is that if you bought a dress from her, you registered the dress and you registered the event that you were wearing the dress to, and she guaranteed no one else would wear the same dress to the same function. And part of what she did is to go to small and medium-sized suppliers and ask for an exclusive in a 100-mile radius. And part of what that did is that women would drive past Macy's and Neiman's and whatever to be able to come visit her. And one of the things about being a small merchant in the 21st century is that you can be nimble and you can make your own unique proposition out there to the market and use social media as a, as a vehicle to compete very successfully with those big boys who just can't move as fast or as well as you can. Great point. I always say it's about being brilliant on the basics in retail. You know, retail isn't hard. It's just a lot of really tiny details you've got to execute every single time. Well, I have to ask you one last question. So uh, with Rent the Runway and some of these other big VC, uh, you know, everyone's going to be doing it in the future. Do you think that uh, rental is going to be the the killer to well, uh, apparel just, stores? People seem uh, to think that's going to be it. Have to recognize in terms of is that rent the runway is actually a dry cleaning business because part of what happens is you rent that gown, you bring the gown back and they have to clean it. And there's a, there, there's a green signature to that that I think is unsustainable. So um, it doesn't mean that rent the one way doesn't have a role. Um, but I think one of the things that we're going to be looking at is what is the green signature of things. And whether that's Amazon delivery or whether that's rent the runway, that ultimately um, we need to be better to each other and we need to be better to the planet. And retail is one of the ways that that's going to happen. Yeah, particularly in somewhere like New York City where you have so many Ubers and so many delivery vehicles and so many FedEx and UPS that the city was never designed to do and people are like, oh, but it's easier online, but there's, we are realizing that other cost is not only gonna be in human capital and money, but frankly, in traffic and in your ability to get to your own house. Well, you've I, been, go I, ahead. I can look out my window right now and be able to see somebody sorting boxes on the sidewalk that are all Amazon related. And literally in the same frame of reference out the window is the garbage can filled with packing material and, and, and uh, uh, I, I think there's some good creative solutions to it. And it doesn't mean that delivery isn't an essential part of our future, but we have to figure out a better way of doing it. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree with it. And on that, I appreciate your time today. And how can they find out more about you and the great work that you do? Well, it is pakawandahill.com or in virusell.com. Well, great. You've been a great guest. And as always, I look forward to reading your next book and turning the page on even more to explore with retail and in food and drink. So thanks again, Paco. Thanks again to my guest, Paco Underhill. He's a gracious guy. I enjoyed speaking about how important it is to understand where you're winning, but that it's often even more important to understand 
where you're losing. This concludes Season 3 of the Tell Me Something Good About Retail Podcast. I'd sure appreciate it if you gave us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast provider. Oh, and if you're looking to reach an audience of retailers who are searching for how to do better in their business, please contact me about sponsorship opportunities for Season 4 of the podcast, debuting in the spring. I'm Bob Fibbs, the Retail Doctor. Thanks again for listening. Tell Me Something Good About Retail is the podcast of The Retail Doctor. Visit RetailDoc.com to learn what makes Bob Fibbs the authority on brick-and-mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest brands all the way down to the smallest mom and pops. As a listener of the Tell Me Something Good About Retail podcast, you can receive free information and guides when you visit RetailDoc.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. For more information, to access the complete archives of past retail goodness, and to see about Bob speaking to your audience, please visit RetailDoc.com.